Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 12. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for such a, a wonderful day that we can congregate together around you. We can praise you and worship you. We can study your word. And Father, our desire today is that, that we would be changed as we are in your presence. It's you that we see. It's you that we want to know more and more. We want to grow, grow in your love and grow in your grace today. So teach us, instruct us, reveal yourself in a, a very special way. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, God wants to reveal himself. And he wants to reveal himself to each and every one of us. Well, I'd like to share something with you. I have this, what's called a little Herodian lamp. I'll hold it up so you can see it. And it was typical of that time of Christ. It was the way that they lit their houses. They would have them in nooks and crannies or sitting on the table. And, and there's a wick on this end. And in a very dark room, it would produce this light. But not an extreme amount of light. If they need to light a larger area, they would have like the end of this where the wick comes out. They would have a larger lamp with several of these ends in here. And then they would hang it up in a room to help light that room. But when we see this lamp, we can't help but be reminded of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. How we need the light of God's word. See, the word is the lamp to my feet. It's what directs us. And when we're in the word, the word itself is what produces this light that directs us and guides us. And that's so important because people tend to be tossed and turned of every wind of doctrine. Oh, looking after this new or looking after this. See, God's word shines the truth. And we're going to be looking at the truth today. We're looking at God's timetable. But in God's timetable, and even in this time now, just as Matthew 5, 14 and 16 says, you are the light of the world. We are to be a light in the world. Now, when Jesus said this passage, it says, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, when Jesus spoke this, it was in the area of, of Galilee. Probably, most people believe, on the western side of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, that is, or Tiberias. But looking across the sea, there's some hills. One city stands out. Susita. And they would have been seeing this light coming from this city because that's how Jesus often talked. He talked about from the surroundings. He would use something to illustrate. As they would look up, they would see the light of the hill. It cannot be hidden. 
This is how our lives are to reflect. Reflect what? The truth. The light that is in us. The word that has become manifest in us. The way that we live is because of the word that has been manifest in us. This is what produces the good works. This is what glorifies Father. See, the light is God's word. And the Holy Spirit takes God's word and works in our lives. It even at times directs, even when we don't know where we're going, but he guides us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We know and we recognize the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And he leads us into all truth. Well, it's very important that when we talk about this light, the, the light of God's word, that we remember right teaching. How important right teaching is. In fact, that's where Paul starts. He says, look at verse 5 in our text. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul begins with this rhetorical question. He, he's intending to jog the Thessalonian minds to take them back to what he's saying. He's basically saying there's, there's nothing new. He's reinforcing what he's, what he's already taught them and, and also at the same time what they've already heard. See, they had gotten off course. They had become excited about the false teachers' teaching. See, having already received the truth and, and to know what was to come, why were they being deceived and sidetracked? See, God has a timetable, but everyone's trying to change God's timetable. Everyone's trying to predict the time. The Bible's very clear. We're to recognize the time of the seasons. But no one knows the hour or the time. But these men were speaking in such a way that they were being drawn away. It was exciting. It was refreshing. But yet these false teachers are fanning flames of confusion. And the result was shock and fear and alarm. They, they thought they were again in the day of the Lord. Confused, alarmed, and shocked. All because of a lie. See, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Paul had already warned them, do not let anyone deceive you. Yet they have. It's so true that sometimes we hear the truth, we hear the warning, but we're so sure we deceive ourselves. Now that passage goes on, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. Now here's the thing that I want you to understand is there is a man of lawlessness. He's called the Antichrist. We'll look at a second. And Paul's explained, look, he can't be in the day of the Lord because there's this apostasy that must come first. Now, he describes this man of lawlessness. He mentions them back in verse 3. But he's better known, as 1 John 2.18 says, as the Antichrist. The Antichrist, it means against or instead of Christ. They are false teachers, false Christ. Now, the early fathers, again, 
unanimously looked for a personal antichrist who was to be manifested after the fall of the Roman Empire. They, they began by just looking for this antichrist. Yet nowhere in the scripture tells us to look. It was only given this knowledge to help the people understand. Understand that they weren't of the day of Lord. This is what's going to happen. But then there was the Protestant reformers years later. Seeing the corruption in the Middle Ages, believed that the papacy embodied the Antichrist. Or even in our own day, 2,000 years of church history, there's still a wide difference of opinion. Who the identity of this man of lawlessness is and the form that he'll take him, and they're looking for him even today. Sadly, many are looking for the Antichrist and not Jesus Christ. Because to them, they say, it's so exciting. I don't find it exciting when there will be a time of destruction that the world has never seen. Well, there are many who think the Antichrist will, will reveal himself in the last days in conjunction with the Great Tribulation period. So they're trying to set dates on the Tribulation and the, the Lord's second coming. And yet the, the coming is spoken of in Daniel 12, 2 and Matthew 24 and Verse 21 in Revelation 7.14. But clearly, verse 7, there is a spirit of apostasy already at work, even in Paul's day in verse 7. In many ways, it continues even today. In fact, about 95 AD, 1 John 2.18 was written, and John writes, Apostle John, Children, it's the last hour, just as you've heard the Antichrist is coming even now. Many Antichrists have already appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. That hour is not a hour, but a period of time. We're in the last times. There's not a question. There's nothing left that has to happen before the Lord can come for his church. Except for you and me to be faithful. Faithful to the Lord. Now again, this word antichrist, anti before the Christ, denotes someone who is against Christ or instead of Christ, who's going to exalt himself as we saw in the text. So that the day of the Lord can't begin until this apostasy comes first, he makes it clear. Now the day of the Lord is a, a period of history mentioned repeatedly in the Old Testament during which God is going to bring judgment blessing upon the people on the earth and in a more direct, dramatic, and even drastic way than ever before. Take a look on the screen with me at Isaiah 13, 6. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. In Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, describing this time, near is the great day of the Lord. Near is the coming very quickly. Listen. The day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is, is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction, desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, the high corners of the place. Let me ask a question. Is there any volunteers to want to go through this tribulation? No. Are there any volunteers to go be with Christ? Yes. 
See, our desire is not to follow after this Antichrist in this day of destruction. His wrath is going to be poured out. And God's wrath is going to be poured out. It's a place that no one would ever want to be. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament where God's going to deal with Israel. He's going to wake them up, the true Israel. Bring them to himself and shake up the heathen. See, that's the purpose of this day of the Lord. It is a time of judgment. Well, look at what verse 6. We see blessed with the right teaching. How important that is. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until taken out of the way. You know, the, the, there's a blessing having the right teaching. Knowing the truth. The truth that will give peace. The truth that gives hope. The truth that brings comfort to our souls. See, first, it could only be God's power holding this back, this restraining force. Notice in verse 6, you know what restrains him. Now, some translations take that word, him, and they capitalize it. It's important. We'll talk about it. See, again, it's God's power holding back Satan. So that this man of sin, this son of destruction, won't be able to come until God permits it by removing the restraining power. That's the Holy Spirit. Then this Antichrist will appear, the Antichrist. See, this is why I titled this message God's Timetable. Because only God can hold back the power of Satan. See, the reason for the restraint was so that the Antichrist would be revealed at God's appointed time, not a moment sooner, just as was Christ. At the perfect time, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Well, there is a point in time, too, for Satan. God works in in history, controlling things. And it's God's timetable, not man's table, not Satan's timetable, but God's. Notice the personal pronouns for the Antichrist and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6 again, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. If you don't have those personal pronouns on him and he, put them in there. It helps you to recognize what's in the text. That's what the translators have done. It shows the context of what it's about. Now, this man of lawlessness means that he's one who stands against. He's one uh, who has a spirit of rebellion. That he's behind every evil scene throughout the whole course of human history. And has been preparing the way for the ultimate rebellion and the man of lawlessness. Now, then the king will do what he pleases. He will exalt, he'll magnify himself above every so-called God. He exalts himself. Language speaks of a, a prophesied king of the north, recognized by most scholars as referring to the Antichrist. 
This manna lawlessness that we've been talking about, it also prepares many within the church to turn from the true faith, to accept the lies, to be apostatized, and that will be increasing common aspects among the church. In fact, as persecution begins to come into this country and other countries and upon the church, people flee the church. You're going to see who that true church is. When a person has to, to die for Christ, make a decision, just as you see in the Middle East and many countries now, there's a church that's pure. This is what happened in China and many other places during times of persecution. Remember, judgment always begins with the church first. But when people talk about this restrainer, they've been puzzled through the, the centuries. In fact, the restrainers always puzzled Bible interpreters. Both from being the Roman Empire and, and the Roman Emperor to the very principle of the law and order or the political leaders in general are this restrainer or even the proclamation of the gospel and the work of Paul. To others, it's been the activity in the person of, of Michael the Archangel. Then there's the presence of the church and the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is in this world and has a special ministry. That ministry is convicting the world of its guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. See, this work which he does is his own. In addition, the Spirit dwells in every believer as the church, the individuals. Work is the, the restraining force in this world. When the church is going to be taken out, or the, then all the light in this world will disappear very quickly. Now, it was until the Pentecost, that the Spirit was known to depart from believers. Perhaps you remember in King David's prayer, do not take thy Holy Spirit away from me in Psalm 51. But it was after Pentecost that the Spirit remained. It remained forever in the believers in the church age. In fact, Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And we have that comfort and assurance that he's always there. In fact, it it is his indwelling spirit that indwells the believers. It maketh the salt unto the earth and the light unto the world. See, salt is to be a, a preservative, but it also hinders and spreads of corruption. Light dispels darkness. The spirit which men love to perform their evil deeds and see the church and the Holy Spirit indwelling this church, our lives are to to be a preservative in this world is to hinder the, the corruption and the light. is to shine in the darkness so people see the truth, but, but also to reveal this corruption. It's, it's a hindering. So when this Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the world, the Holy Spirit goes out, the, the church will go out. You take it away and this world will become dark so, so quickly. When the Holy Spirit leaves this world as a, as a permanent indweller, as we mentioned, in the church, the individuals are gone. The church will be gone, gone to be with the Lord. 
but there will be no restraint of lawlessness. This world will become evil faster than ever before. People that you thought were moral and pure and good all of a sudden will be doing things that you could never imagine. And I'm so thankful we're taking up that we don't have to see this. That's why this teaching is so important. Right teaching prevents the disciple of Christ from being tossed and turned to every wind of doctrine. I'd like to give you an illustration. When the Great Revolution burst but an unhappy land of France, the, the streets ran red with blood. Is the sudden, suddenly released the citizens flexed its muscles and drank the heady wine of power, revenged itself upon the nobility of France, then marched to the stirring strains, the storm. They stormed Bastille and freed the political prisoners. They scaled Notre Dame tore the cross from the high, flung it to the streets below. We're going to pull down everything that reminds you of God. A revolutionary told a peasant. People hated the arrogant Roman Catholic Church as much as they did the arrogant. The aristocracy. The guillotine worked night and day. The great nobles of France were hauled off in their farm cars to meet the fate of mirrored the jeers, the cheers of the people. England watched, waited. Conditions in England were about as bad as they were in France. The people in England were ripe for the, the revolution too. A haughty and privilege. Leadership rode high and wide and handsome. A careless church offered people stones for bread and its fox hunting parsons disgraced the gospel and moral conditions among the people were never never at a lower ebb crime and drunkenness immorality reigned supreme and all that England needed was a spark spark from across the channel and it would set ablaze the peers of England knew what to expect but then God brought about it, the Wesleys, and a revival broke out. Millions see a people turned to Christ. The historian Lucky wrote, the Methodist revival saved England from a bloody revolution. What saved England was not the British Navy. Given half a chance, the sailors would have sided with the insurgents. It was not the army that saved England, nor was it the parliamentary reform nor was it the indecision or of the common people. It was the Holy Spirit revival. John Wesley preached 42,000 sermons, traveling 250,000 miles to do so. His brother Charles wrote over 6,000 hymns, 4,000 of which are so popular that they were published and sung one end of the land to the other. And the Wesleys reached the heart and conscience of England, and everyone they, everywhere they went. Everywhere they went, they left behind converts, 
by the thousands, a trail of churches fired with a message and host of spirit-filled preachers to conserve the fruit and spread the word. Nor did it end there. Other revivals followed. From the English-speaking world went out armies of missionaries to carry the news to other lands. Moreover, Reformation followed hard on the heels of revival. Social conditions were improved. When the rapture comes and the church is gone, the restraining. The restraint are no longer operating through the church. The mystical body of Christ to arrest the corruption and decay. The way will be cleared at last for the man of sin. Satan will be swift to seize the initiative once the obstacle has been removed. The one who has fought and feared for so long and mysterious supernaturally is removed. As for other revivals that will follow the rapture, you will know how to deal with those. Individual believers not baptized in this mystical body will be easily prey. He'll simply stamp them out. He'll he tried the church. He tried that with the church, but it didn't work. The church always came back with fresh revivals. And when the Holy Spirit's pulled out, Satan will have his way. His coming, that is the Antichrist, will be after the working of Satan. It will dawn upon him that his time is short. Just like Hitler, who once realized that the war was lost and he was determined to do all the damage he could do before finally committing suicide. Satan will refuse to acknowledge the defeat. He'll work harder. Harder to harm the human race, which he hates with malice, vindictiveness, but defy description. Look with me in verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed from whom will slay with his breath of his mouth and bring it in by the appearance of his coming. That is the one who is coming in the court of activity of Satan with all power, signs, and false wonders. See, this time is going to be full of deceit and destruction by this lawless one. Matthew 16, 18, and 19 says this, Also say to you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. See, God had said, Jesus had said that he would build that church, but now the church is being taken out of the way, brought to be with the Lord. Isaiah 11, 4 says this, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. See, God takes his church away but this judgment, this wrath is being poured out. Calvin suggested the breath of his mouth was simply his word. In any case, a literal battle is not being described. 
After the removal of this restrainer, the Holy Spirit, the world will plunge into a headlong, into the lawlessness, and the man of sin will be revealed. This will be a time that God is pouring his wrath out. Now, the Antichrist is an agent, agent of Satan himself. Now, the Greek prefix, anti, as I mentioned, is, is against, instead of, that's what he chooses to do, is he is against Christ, and he uses himself, his, his place, to be instead of Christ. Satan simply opposes the work of Christ. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be obeyed instead of Christ. In fact, in Isaiah 14, 14, Satan said this, I will send above the heights the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. If you follow Isaiah 14, that passage, all the ways that Satan exalts himself. His agents, energized by Satan, can perform miracles. The signs, the coming of the Antichrist will be lying signs, though, intended to deceive, if possible, the very elect. That's what it says in Matthew 24, verses 23 and 24. Now, the elect sometimes we're confused about because there are elect angels. Israel is elect. Again, the church is elect. These are the ones that are going through the tribulation. Those who are believers. Those that are leading up to that tribulation when these things begin to, to show. There are false signs and wonders and people doing these things today. And the elect will never, ever be deceived. See, they hear Jesus' voice and they follow him. Notice Matthew 24 Verses 23 and 24. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the lack. The miracles of the Lord proved him to be the promised Messiah, not simply because they were supernatural, but because they fulfilled the prophecy. They were messianic miracles. And were of such moral nature that Satan could, could not have done them without harming his own cause. Now, he's called the son of destruction and the man of lawlessness. It's in verse 3 and verses 8 and 9. Now, he appears as a, a peacemaker, really a false peace. In Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2, he is a protector. And who will try to usurp the place of God. He's allowed by God to further lead astray those who've already rejected Jesus Christ. Those are the people that come to that point of no return. And after a brief reign, though he will be destroyed by Christ's advent and his glory in verse 8. Finally, Satan will be bound in abyss. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 10 with me. And with all deception of wickedness for those that perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Notice how Paul shifts from describing the lawless one to the deceived followers, those who will perish in verse 10. Those who make the choice to follow the Antichrist will be confirmed that their choice by God, who sinned the powerful delusion upon those who believe the lie. See, because they, 
they want to believe the lie, God sends a, a lying spirit upon them. And they will be continue to be deceived and further and further beyond simply a, a delusion. See, the lie, of course, is the Antichrist claim to, to be God. His miracles are not the only thing that will deceive the people into thinking that he is divine. See, everything he does will mislead people, especially those whose minds are blinded to the truth of who he is and what he's doing, because they do not believe God's word. In fact, it's not a matter of just not believing. They don't want to believe. See, these are the people who refuse to receive the Lord Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh. And the greatest evil that Satan could ever do is misrepresent the truth and lead people away from worshiping God. John 5.43 says this, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. See, the Jews would hardly be deceived by a, a, a Gentile Messiah, the doom of the truth, the rejectors, because, because of the demonic deception. Now, this demonic deception is all around during the church age. It is limited, though, by the power of the Holy Spirit's restraining force. See, no true believer will ever be deceived. That's what worries me. That worries others when we see people tossed and turned and they're not following after sound biblical doctrine. As if Jesus is not enough. And I have to ask you the question is, is Jesus enough? And hang on to him and hang on to his word. And does this mean that God is to blame for man's rejection of, of Christ? No, no more than God was to blame for Pharaoh's spiritual condition when Moses was bringing plagues in Egypt. See, Pharaoh had heard God's word, saw God's wonders, yet refused to bow to God's will. Now, it's true that Pharaoh occasionally relented, gave lip service to God's will, but he always resisted in the end, refused to obey God. In fact, he hardened his heart. So he could not believe the truth. Just like the, the, the God's final judgment on the land of Egypt. But look at Isaiah 66, 4 with me. So I will choose their punishments and bring upon them what they dread. Because I called, and no one answered. I spoke, but no one listened. And they did evil in my sight, and chose that which I did not delight in. See, before he rained down hell from heaven upon the wicked people of Sodom, God first smote vile practitioners of perversion with a blindness in Genesis 19. In fact, before the flood came, to cleanse the world, Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, was there confirming the word of truth. Yet he confirmed them the welfare ignorance of, of who Jesus Christ is. Paul warned, the time comes in this personal history of the unbeliever when God gives up. This is what the Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 32 calls a turning over to a reprobate mind. See, God warns. 
In fact, in Genesis 6.3, God said, My spirit shall not always strive with men. The epistle to the Hebrews warns against crossing that line. You can go too far. See, God will send, a, send to those who heard and rejected the gospel a strong delusion. Now, that word delusion literally means to wander, forsake the right path. God's saying, if you don't want to believe, then, then I'll make it possible that you never have to believe. It refers to both a, a deviation, both in doctrine or the, the teaching, as, as well as moral values. The closing verses of this passage reveal the chilling picture of those who fall prey to the deceptiveness of the Antichrist. Whatever else may be said about those who turn away from God, they ultimately make a deliberate choice to love their own sin more than they love God. As Paul put it, they perish not because they've not heard the truth, because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. Hebrews 3.12 and 15 says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be and any one of you evil, an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. So none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. And if we hold fast to the beginning of the assurance firm until the end. And he ends with verse 15, while it still said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, there's a warning today. There are many that are mocking God, many saying, well, the church has been saying he's coming, he's coming for so long that they've hardened their heart, they don't believe. Sometimes they see the hypocrisy and in those who profess to be believers, they harden their heart. Why would I want to ever go to church when the church is full of hypocrites? You've heard that. And they harden their hearts. God warns, do not harden your heart. While it's true that there are many who profess to be Christians, but sadly, they did not possess the relationship with Jesus Christ. Though the one who does believe in Jesus Christ, and the one that possesses that relationship, is not a hypocrite. He's a human being. He's not perfect. He still sins. But he's quick to confess his sin and repent and do what needs to be done to make it right. See, if a person doesn't repent quickly, the process of hardening the heart begins. And one day, he walks away. Father, I pray that's not true. And those in this congregation, those who call upon your name, God, open up the eyes of their heart before it's too late. Help us to provoke one another on to good works. Help us to iron sharpen iron, 
give us the words and wisdom to reach out to our brothers and sisters that are that are struggling. Help us to walk the straight and narrow path that leads light. Help us to be the light unto the world. Help us that we would be true Christians and the world would see what a Christian is to look like. Father, we know that this Antichrist is coming. We know there is a tribulation. We know that, that we're not appointed to wrath. But we know there is going to be a deception like the world has never, ever seen before. Lord, we pray for those today that do not know you. God, that you will just use your church to shine the light into their life and that you would open up their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.